If you ever had one of those times when you're, you're getting ready to like take a trip, and maybe it's a business trip, maybe it's vacation or something, and, and you're packing and you're doing things and you've got your checklist and you're doing all that stuff, but as you're getting ready to go, there's just that nagging sense that you forgot something, right? It's just, it, yeah, it's like, oh, did I pack this? Did you get that? Did you, did you contact that? And you find yourself sometimes just having to sweep back through the house one more time for just, just some assurance that everything's unplugged, that's supposed to be unplugged or turned off or, or that we, we did actually pack this or didn't forget that or whatever it may be. We kind of go back and double check because we just have that gnawing sense that something's missing, something's not there, something like was left out. Or maybe for you, it's, it's a project at work. And you're working on a team, and everybody's got kind of some deliverables that they're supposed to bring to make this project work. But there's that, there's that one person on your team, and you just kind of have this feeling, I don't know. I don't know if they're going to do what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it. And, and you find yourself just with these doubts just kind of nagging at your mind. And, and you start to kind of give evidence of that, don't you? You, you find yourself kind of kind of dropping by and checking on them a little bit. And, hey, how's it going? And, uh, need any help with that or anything I can do to help? Or uh, you, you're trying to track to make sure they're on time because you kind of have that that little bit of doubt that they're really going to come through. But what I have found is that there are a lot of people who live with kind of that nagging sense of, I'm not sure, that lack of assurance, that sense of doubt, not just about a trip or a project, but about their relationship with God. They, they have this sense of... I think I'm okay. I try, but then there are days, there are times. I just, I don't know. I don't know if I'm really connected to God. I don't know if I'm right with God. And sometimes we operate not out of an assurance, but out of a doubt. And one of the reasons I think Paul wrote what he did in Romans 8 was for assurance. That he really wanted followers of Jesus Christ to know and to operate out of a sense of assurance that they actually belong to him. And right out of what he written in Romans 7 where he talked about, you know, the struggle that we all have that are times there are things I want to do that I, I don't do and things I don't want to do. I find myself occasionally stumbling into those and, and sometimes that just in, that increases the doubt and the lack of assurance. And, and so he follows that up with some of the verses we're going to look at today, this sense of we have reason for assurance that one of the truths that I think God wants us to operate from is that every true follower of Jesus Christ, all of us who are true followers of Jesus Christ, are a part of God's family. And we're a part of God's family forever. In fact, is we'll come back to that theme a little bit later in Romans 8 when he talks about nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus but here, here's, I'll just go ahead and tell you on the front, is preparing this message, there's a tension. And that tension has given forth to a prayer. And the tension in the prayer has been around, Lord, there are going to be some of your children who are going to be here in this morning in these three services, and they're not operating from a full assurance. 
there's doubts, there's nagging, there's fear. Oh, Lord, would you just so graciously give to us an assurance of our standing with you? But the flip of that is, Lord, there may be some people who are operating out of a false assurance. And the purpose is not to create doubt, but, but to say, God, don't let anybody walk out of this room with a false assurance. That we don't, don't need a false assurance, but God wants us to have a full assurance of our relationship with him. And what Paul talks about in the verses that we we're getting ready to look at here in Romans 8 are some of what we're going to call the evidences, four evidences of our adoption. He uses that, that terminology here, that we have been adopted into the family of God if we are truly in Jesus Christ. But, there, but that shows up. That shows up. So as we go through these four, I want you to make sure you're hearing them correctly. These are not four things you do to earn adoption. These are not four things that you can perform to kind of say, God will say, I pick you for my team now. Now, these are kind of natural outcomes. These are things that flow naturally out of a life that is connected to Jesus Christ, that flows naturally out of a life that is a part of God's family. Four things that show up, if you will, or give evidence of our adoption as a part of God's family. The first evidence that we'll look at is we are led by the Spirit of God. Those who are a part of God's family give evidence of being led by the Spirit of God. Verse 14 reads this way. He talks about for all, all, everybody, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, that's about as straightforward as you can get it, right? If you're led by the Spirit of God, you're a son of God. You're a daughter of God. You're a child of God. If you're not led by the Spirit of God, then you're not. Uh, that, that's, that's the connection here. The first evidence is we are led by the Spirit of God. You say, well, Jeff, that sounds great. Kind of sounds real Sunday morning-ish, but what the heck does that mean? I mean, how does that, how does that begin to play out in my life? Well, let's think of kind of around two, two categories, if you will, of what it means to be led by the Spirit of God. The first, let's just think of illumination illumination. And what we mean by illumination is that, that God's Spirit works to, to bring to our mind that sense of where God wants us to go, how God wants us to live. That's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit as a teacher, as a guide. Jesus promised us this, John 14. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. One of the things that gives evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life is that we're being taught by the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is bringing to remembrance things, particularly that Jesus said, taught, or modeled for us. One of the ways that I often try to talk to folks about it is, if I am a child of God, if I am a child of God, then the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and leads me or directs me into the will of God. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and directs us into the will of God. That's that process of illumination. Remember last week we talked about one of the things that happens when the Holy Spirit is present, we become alive to some things. And one of the things we become alive to is the Word of God. 
the portions of God's Word. We read, read the Bible before, but it was like, ah, this doesn't make sense. I don't get it. But then this Holy Spirit begins to be our teacher. The Holy Spirit gives illumination and understanding to our mind. And so that's inherent in being led by the Spirit. The Spirit of God is at work in the child of God and takes particularly the Word of God and directs us into the will of God. But it doesn't just stop there. When we talk about being led by the Spirit, it's not just about illumination or a mental understanding, but it's about an empowered obedience. We are enabled, we are empowered to obey. Not only do we begin to know the will of God, but we begin to walk in the will of God. To the Galatians, Paul wrote, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, and I just love this next phrase, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That, that's, that's the essence of what it means to be led by the Spirit, is, is God illuminates my mind, illuminates my understanding. Now I have a desire and a capacity to keep in step with the Spirit. So when Peter was writing to followers of Christ, he reminds them of the capacity, the power that they have. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, that's, that's an incredible promise. And we've already talked in this series. Last week we were talking about we were set free. Set free from the penalty of sin, but set free from the power of sin. We have a divine enablement, this divine power. God has given to us in the Holy Spirit not only illumination that shows us the way, but gives us the capacity to walk in the way, to keep in step with the Spirit. We have divine power, everything that we need for life to meet the demands of reality and for godliness. One of the ways I like to think about it is through this phrase, what God calls me to do, God enables me to do. What God calls me to do, he enables me to do. That's an encouraging phrase. It's it's an empowering phrase. It's a hopeful phrase, but it's also an excuse-removing phrase, all right? Because if that's true, then I can't say to God, God, I can't. I can't resist that temptation. I can't live distinctly. I can't parent intentionally. God, I can't say I can't break that habit. I I can't tell him all these things that he's calling me to do. I, I can't use the excuse anymore. I can't do that. Because if I'm in Christ, it's not true. Doesn't mean it won't be a struggle. Doesn't mean he's not going to bring people alongside me to help in the process. But what God calls me to do He enables me to do. The first evidence that Paul gives us here of truly being a part of the family of God, of being adopted into God's forever family, is that we are increasingly, none of us are always there perfectly, but we are increasingly over time being led by the Spirit of God. The second evidence is that God's love replaces fear in our lives. That more and more we operate not from a platform of fear, but from a platform, a security of love. Keep with the text there, verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
Now, one of the things that sometimes is challenging for us is we don't realize sometimes the shock value of words or how, how radically different these words were to some of the folks that it was originally being spoken to. When, when Jesus was teaching his followers to pray, and he talked about our Father. I mean, that, that, was, that was kind of a shock to the, the Jewish system. Not that there wasn't thoughts of God as their father, but they, they had a tradition that so revered the name of God, they wouldn't even write it out. They had a shorthand way for writing that out. And so to think about approaching the God of the universe with a familiar phrase like Abba, Daddy, I mean, that was just shocking. But here Paul is affirming that. He said, what you have to realize is that if you are in Jesus Christ, you have a different standing. And that different standing gives you a different relationship with the God of the universe. And it's a relationship of intimacy. He is not this distant deity. Is he holy? Yes. Is he to be feared in a a reverential all without a doubt? Do we, sometimes our error is not, uh, we, we, we approach with too much reverence. Our error tends to be we approach too flippantly. Yes, we are to, to approach it, but it's an invitation to intimacy. It's not just addressing Mr. So-and-so, creator of the universe, but it's daddy, Abba, father. And out of that intimacy and out of that relationship, it's a place of security, a place of security. I don't have to earn his love. He has poured out his love. Yes, he'll correct and teach and mold and guide, but I don't have to fear that because what I know is behind it is always perfect wisdom and perfect love. And so I begin to increasingly operate not out of a platform of fear, not out of a platform of insecurity, but a platform of love, that I have a security in my relationship with God. And out of that intimacy and out of that security comes an increased longing for communion with God. An increased longing for communion with God. So that more and more I, I find that as the years go by that God works in me and I, I long, I long to be in community with him. I long to be connected to him. I long to, to have that communication with him every step of the way. And this, these begin to be just those evidences that I'm operating not out of fear, Fear that I, I'm not going to be good enough today. I'm not going to be accepted today. Uh, fear that just it really is born out of slavery, but I'm operating out of love that I have been adopted by the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that I am a part of his forever family, and I have an Abba Father who is with me and who is for me. And when I begin to operate out of that platform, it changes the way I live. And you see that throughout the New Testament. John talked about there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. There are some of us that God just wants to, to just set us free. And maybe, maybe you didn't experience a lot of human unconditional love. And it's hard to believe that a God could love you that way. Part of, the, part of the message, part of the, the greatness of Romans 8 is just a reminder 
that we are a part of his family. Abba, Father. To Timothy, Paul wrote, don't, don't be marked by fear because he has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Those are hallmarks of our life. That's what flows in our life when we operate not out of fear, but out of love. What is the evidence of my connection with God, that I'm a part of his forever family? I'm increasingly led by the Spirit. God's love continually replaces fear in my life. The third evidence is that the work of the Holy Spirit is evident in our lives. That increasingly, and again, not perfect, increasingly the Holy Spirit's work is evident in our lives. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, there are kind of multiple levels here, if you were. The, the first, and I think maybe the, uh, the most evident in that passage, is that sense of internal assurance. And I realize that some folks get nervous when you talk about this because they think, oh, well, somebody can have this false internal assurance. And you can, and I can. Uh, but, but that doesn't deny the fact that God in his graciousness has given to us the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit does, he speaks to our spirit and just says, you belong you're accepted, you're forgiven, you're secure. And the Holy Spirit gives us an internal assurance. But that's not the only evidence of the Holy Spirit's activity in our life. And let me just suggest a few more to you this morning as we, we, we think about these evidences. Uh, another one is just the fruit. The, the fruit of the Spirit begins to show up in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And, and as we begin to think, wait a minute, if, if this is true, if I am truly adopted into this family, if I truly belong to him, if someone as powerful as the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in my life, then, then that begins to display in my life. This fruit begin to be evidenced in my life so that the people maybe that know me and interact with me on a regular basis, hopefully they can begin to see a trend line and not not that you go from like zero to perfection but this trend line that for as opposed to a year ago or two years ago or five years ago there there is a growth in in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and all of those things and it's one of the evidences is this really operative in my life are these things showing up in my life but not only the fruit of the spirit but the gifts of the spirit one of the things the scripture reminds us is that as we are in Christ, that we are uniquely gifted for ministry. One of the passages that talks about that is 1 Corinthians 12. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. In everyone. Everybody that's a part of the body of Christ is gifted for ministry. And that's why we talk around here about the importance of finding your right place of service, our R, your right place of service. Because what we're convinced of is that God has gifted every one of us for ministry. He has shaped every one of us to be not just a consumer, but a contributor, a contributor to the work of the kingdom. And he's given us unique personalities, He's given us a variety of spiritual giftedness, natural aptitudes and abilities. He's given us some heart passion, some things that we're just passionate about. 
He's taken life experiences and he's shaped you. And he takes all of those things and he, he wants to use you for ministry. And one of the evidences of belonging to him is that I have a desire to use my gift. It is to use who he has created me to be, serving him by serving others. And so again, as I begin to just unpack this, is that showing up in my life? Is that being evidenced in my life along the way? Another way that the Holy Spirit's work shows up is in sharing Christ. That, that as the, the Spirit is there, there is this empowerment, there is this desire to share the good news of Christ, to share the love, the power, the grace, the acceptance that we have found in Jesus Christ. When Jesus was preparing the disciples uh, before his departure, right before his ascension, he reminded them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That every one of us, if, if I'm part of the family of God, I am a witness. The question sometimes is, what kind of witness and to whom am I witnessing? But we are a witness. And that, that's part of the work of God's Spirit within me, that I have this desire to share Christ, that, that I want to, out of the flow of my walk with Him, share Christ in word and deed with the people in my life along the way. So we begin to think about all of these evidences. Let me give you one more evidence, one more evidence, and that is Paul talks about here in verse 17 that we share in Christ's sufferings. And maybe you're like me. When I came to this one, it's like, couldn't we have stopped with the first three? <laughs> I mean, really? Really, God? Really? Really? And yet, that's exactly what the Scripture says. Let's look at verse 17 together. And if children, if you belong to him, if you've been adopted, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I like it so far. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, there's a lot there in that verse. Let me, let me touch on one part and then spend a little more time on, on the second part. The first part is just a reminder that in Jesus Christ, we are heirs. If we are part of God's forever family, we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ for, with all the promises and all the provisions of God. That is our inheritance. That is our heritage if we are a part of God's family. And he is going to work in us, as the, the, it ended that phrase, that we would be glorified with him. And, and I'm not going to spend tons of time here this morning because we're going to talk a little bit about some of those promises and provisions in a couple of weeks when we come back here to Romans 8. But, but I just want to go ahead and put on the front end that it is, it is our heritage. It is our inheritance. It is inherent in being part of the family of God that we are heirs to the promises and the provisions of God, both for this life and for all eternity. Years ago, one of the, the, the richest men alive, and still probably historically would uh, qualify as one of the richest men, was a man by the name of uh, Cecil Rhodes. Cecil Rhodes. Not sure if you're familiar with that name or not. He was an Englishman who, for health reasons, ended up moving to Africa. And he found himself in South Africa, and there in South Africa, he got into diamond mining. 
And he literally made a fortune. He made a fortune. Unfortunately, he died at the age of 49. And as his will was read, it was discovered that he didn't leave a whole lot to his siblings and family. Instead, he endowed the Rhodes Scholarship, which is still blessing people today with opportunities for advanced education. In fact, it is upon hearing that his brother had taken this vast fortune and invested most of it in the Rhodes Scholarship, his brother Arthur said, well, there it is. It seems like now I shall have to win a scholarship. <laughs> it was the only way he was going to get an inheritance, right? Can I just remind you that when it comes to the inheritance of God, when it comes to the promises and provisions of God, you can't earn a scholarship. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. But you can receive it. And the only way to receive it is by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And I just needed to pause here for just a moment because what I know is that there are some in this room who, when it comes to their relationship with God, are still trying to win a scholarship. And God says, you'll never qualify. You'll never qualify. The only ones who enjoy the promises and provisions of God are those who are truly in Christ Jesus who are a part of his family now and forever through Jesus Christ. But part of that inheritance, if you will, part of that heritage, part of being a part of this family is that we live in a world where we will experience trouble, where we will experience the reality of suffering. And Jesus just put it out there. I mean, so sometimes you go, you read the Gospels, you read and you think, Jesus, he shouldn't have ever taught an evangelism course because he just, he doesn't always do it right. I mean, he just kind of lays it out there, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and says, you know, uh, den, you know, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. And it's like, that's not great marketing, but it's truth, right? It's truth. And here's kind of that same thing. So he's talking about these guys that are following him. I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That there is the reality of suffering that all of us experience in this sin-scarred world. But there is a suffering that even at times comes uniquely to a follower of Jesus Christ. And I want us just to maybe think about three forms or three areas of suffering, if you will. And the first one is persecution. Persecution. And quite honestly, it doesn't hardly seem right for an American as myself to, to talk about that. Because for most of us, we don't really know what that word means. Certainly not on a level that brothers and sisters in Christ all across this world know. And yet it is a mark of those who follow Jesus Christ. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets 
who were before you. It happened before, Jesus said. It's going to continue to happen if you're going to follow God, if you're going to walk with us in, in step with the Spirit. You are going to be running counter to the culture. And at times, that's going to bring the heat. At times, that's going to invite persecution. Jesus would continue to teach, John 15, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. It might do us well to remember that the core symbol of our faith is a cross. And it was not a piece of jewelry. It was an instrument of execution. Inherent in the call to follow Christ, and one of the marks, perhaps, of a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, is that we will experience some trouble, some tribulation, some suffering, some even perhaps persecution as a result of following Christ. Jonathan Chow, who is the president of uh, uh, Christ College in Taipei, is also the director of the Chinese Church Research Center in Hong Kong, and part of kind of his specialty is, is studying and trying to document suffering in the particularly suffering in the context of the, the church in China. One of the things he writes, one can almost say that suffering for Christ is a mark of genuine discipleship. Martin Lloyd Jones said, if you are suffering as a Christian and because you are a Christian, it is one of the surest proofs that you can ever have of the fact that you are a child of God. Interesting to note, just in doing some reading in the past couple of weeks, even as crackdowns are happening in various parts of the world, including some parts of China, it seems that the gospel flourishes under the harshest of conditions. In fact, is even as crackdowns are going on, the projections now are that by 2030, if not sooner, there will be more Christians in China than there are in the United States of America. And one of their expressions is, the greater the crackdown, the greater the persecution, the greater the revival. Why? Because there is something that tests the genuineness of our faith in the face of persecution. And the gospel has flourished Not necessarily in times of abundance, but in times of opposition. Now, I I know that probably for most of us in this room, we have never experienced that type of persecution. We've never been jailed. We've never been beaten. We've never watched our home and a church building, all our belongings burned for no other reason than we belong to Christ. We've never seen atrocious things happen to our, our, our spouses or children because of being a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't know that that will forever be the case. I do know some of you have lost friendships over following Christ. Some of you have been put in a position in your job whether you had, to, you had to do what was clearly right biblically or to get a, go along to get along, and it cost you your job. And I know those things happen. And I'm no prophet or son of a prophet, but if 
trend lines are any indication in the absence of a revival of God, I think we'll probably see more and more of those type things even in our own country. And what Paul tells us in Romans is that is a mark of a follower of Jesus Christ. That is evidence of someone who is part of the family of God. Sometimes suffering is about persecution. Sometimes it's about purification. Purification. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we've talked about this in recent weeks, but just, just a reminder, Isaiah 48, Behold, God speaking, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. That in this world, as it's, as it's marred by sin, we experience uh, affliction, but God uses that to refine us. And that refining of purification through suffering is one of the evidences of the presence of Jesus Christ in our lives. Sometimes it's purification. Sometimes it's God training us, training us, shaping values or character qualities within us. Oftentimes the scripture talks about God as a loving heavenly father disciplining us and again we've we've talked about this in the past couple weeks so i won't spend time here but other than reminder it is for discipline that you have to endure god is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it Sometimes God uses suffering to train us, to shape us for his purposes. John MacArthur puts it this way. The suffering in this life creates reactions that reflect the genuine condition of the soul. How we respond to suffering gives evidence to the condition of our soul. How we respond to suffering gives evidence to the activity, the presence, or the lack of activity and presence of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, let me take just a moment and connect this to witnessing. Can I just maybe bring some encouragement to some of you this morning? For some of you, the most powerful witness that you will ever have for and to Jesus Christ is how you walk through suffering. That people will hear your words, but sometimes it'll sound like Charlie Brown's teacher, you know, wah, 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 wah. But they're going to watch you suffer. And they're going to watch how you walk through that suffering. And the way that you walk through that suffering may be the most powerful and the most impactful witness that you will ever have for Jesus Christ. And it may very well be that that will be the loudest, greatest evidence of the presence of Jesus Christ and the reality of Jesus Christ in your life is how you walk through suffering. Don't miss what God may want to be doing in the midst of your suffering. Let me take you back to the beginning. We've looked at four evidences of our adoption. 
The opening statement that I made was that all true followers of Jesus Christ are a part of God's family. But here's kind of the second part of that statement. Every member of God's family will display these evidences. Every true follower of Jesus Christ is a part of God's family, but what you need to know is that every member of God's family, every genuine member of God's family will display these evidences. Please hear me. That doesn't mean we bat a thousand. It doesn't mean that they always show up strongly every moment of every day. We're all still in process, but while there may not be perfection, there should be progress. There should be progress that would be evident where I was a year ago or two years ago or five years ago compared to where I am at today. Every genuine follower of Jesus Christ is a part of God's forever family, but every member of God's forever family gives evidence of that. There are things that show up in our lives as a natural outcome of our connection to Christ. And one of my favorite stories of, of thinking about this was, was uh, some parents who were talking to their, their little girl about God and about faith. And, and you know, the, if you're a parent and, and you're trying to raise your child in that way, that, that's a discussion. That's not just like a, a one, one afternoon at 3 o'clock we're going to have this discussion. But it's, it's, it's you know, it, it kind of in some sense unfolds over years and, and, and particularly even months and weeks as uh, some of that becomes real. And, and the parents, you know, like all of us, you're looking for the right words that kind of are understandable to your child. And, and the, these parents had kind of fallen into a little bit of the default language that sometimes we use about asking Jesus into your life or asking Jesus into your heart. But sometimes phrases that make sense to us on an adult level sometimes don't make as much sense on a kid's level. You know, they're thinking maybe a little more concretely rather than abstractly. And, and so this little girl, when they started talking about asking Jesus into your heart, she was kind of puzzled look. And she thought about it and she came back to her daddy one time and she said, Daddy, I don't understand. I mean, Jesus is so much bigger than me. If I ask Jesus into my heart, won't he stick out all over? (laughs) Out of the mouths of babes, right? Because it's true. Jesus Christ is so much bigger than me. The Holy Spirit is so much bigger than me. And if he is genuinely in my life, he is going to stick out all over. And there is going to be evidences in my life that I belong to him. And so what do I do with these evidences? Well, I'm going to encourage you to just reflect on them. And the reflection is kind of twofold, if you will. The first reflection is what Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. Now, remember what I said at the very beginning, and I'm going to move this table back while I'm talking. I said at the very beginning that my hope and my prayer and my desire for this morning is that, is that God would use this morning to give assurance to those who are genuinely, genuinely, genuinely part of God's forever family. But God, I also pray if there's anybody that is walking with a false assurance that you would disturb, that you would disrupt, that you would make that clear to them. And through the years as I've talked to folks about 
assurance. There's a phrase that I had read and it's been helpful to me and I've shared it individually with some of you and even taught it from this platform before, but I want to just bring you back to it and I always like to use a chair. Here's the phrase. The phrase is when it comes to assurance, when it comes to kind of am I really connected to God, am I really part of his family, my present posture is more important than my past memory. My present posture is more important than my past memory. And you say, Jeff, that's not helping me at all. Stick with me here, okay? See, what we have is that sometimes there are folks that feel a lack of assurance because of their past memory. Because maybe some teacher or some preacher stood up and said sometime along the way, if you don't remember the exact time and the exact day and the place where you asked Christ into your heart, then you're not really saved. And some folks are sitting there thinking, I don't know. I mean, maybe you grew up in a Christian home and the Bible and God and Christ, it was just kind of always apart. And, and you, it, that faith eventually became your own, but you don't, you don't know that like exact moment. And there are people, because they don't have a memory of that exact moment, they walk around with a lack of assurance. Your present posture is more important than your past memory. Here's the flip side of that. There are other folks who are walking around and they feel pretty secure in their relationship with Christ because of a past memory. Because somewhere along the way, they walked an aisle, they raised their hand, they signed a card, they prayed a prayer, they were baptized, they were confirmed, they did what you were supposed to do, they checked it off the list. But the reality is, if you start thinking about these evidences, there's no indication that Jesus Christ is sticking out all over. But because they have a past memory, they feel secure. Present posture is more important than past memory. When I talk to folks about what biblical faith really means, I like to use the word trust and even talk about something like a chair. You know, listen, I, I can talk to you about the virtues of this chair, of how it's built, strong materials. I can even give testimony. I sit in it on a regular basis. I'm a big guy. It holds me up. You could sit in it. It's okay. And you may be sitting there and, and you may say, you know, I buy that argument. <laughs> I give intellectual assent to that argument. That is a sturdy, trustworthy chair. But that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is when you entrust yourself to someone or to something. Here's, here's how J Jeff says it. I really don't have faith in this chair until I put my fanny in it. <laughs> All right? That, that's, that's, that's the reality. Not when I've studied the diagrams and researched the strength of material. It's when I rest my weight upon it, when I entrust my body to it, that I'm trusting in this chair. And that's what it means to trust Christ. And that's what it, what it means when we talk about present posture. In my present posture, who am I trusting? Who am I leaning on? Who am I counting on? 
regardless of what my past memory may or may not be, what is my present posture? Because present posture is more important than past memory. And so as I begin to reflect on these evidences, I have to ask myself, is my present posture such that Jesus Christ is sticking out all over? Is my present posture such that it is evident that I belong to Jesus Christ? That's where assurance comes from. The first level of reflection is, am I truly in Jesus Christ? The second level of reflection is, if, if indeed I am in Jesus Christ, is there any way that I am inhibiting the display of these evidences in my life? You see, the Bible talks about the fact that even those who are in Jesus Christ can grieve the Holy Spirit. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by God from whom you were sealed before the day of redemption. These folks are in Jesus Christ. They're sealed by the Holy Spirit, but yet they still have the capacity to grieve, to limit, to inhibit the full display and work of the Holy Spirit in and through their lives. And in another place, Paul talks about we have the capacity to quench the activity of the Spirit. And so as I begin to reflect on these evidences... I may say, well, God, I see, I, I see glimpses of these, but God, the honest truth is I'm not sure it's radically different from a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. God, what is in my life that's been inhibiting the work of your Holy Spirit? In what ways have I been grieving you or quenching the work of the Spirit? What is it that I need to adjust so that more and more those evidences are on display through my life. My desire for every one of us is that we would walk out of this room with a full assurance. A full assurance of our adoption into God's forever family. And out of that full assurance that we would so walk in a way that six months from now, a year from now, if God would allow us two years or five years from now, that people who know us, interact with us on a regular basis would see more evidence of the existence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives a year from now, two years from now, five years now from now than they do today. And my prayer is that no one would walk out of this room with a false assurance, but that we would have a genuine experience with Jesus Christ. And so I want to pray around those things for you. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, I thank you for all that you have provided for us in Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the richness of the provision. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you're, you're still at work in our lives. Thank you for these evidences that show up in our life when we belong to you. And Lord, I just pray right now that you would just so graciously speak to every one of us. Father, I pray for your children in this room right now. Father, I pray for those who are genuinely a part of your forever family. Lord, would you just give to them an assurance today? Would you just graciously speak truth into their lives? Remind them that they are loved. Remind them that they can operate not out of fear, but out of of security, out of love. Remind them that that you desire to do far more in them and through them than they could ever begin to think or imagine. Father, just remind them that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that they have been set free not only from the penalty of sin but from the power of sin. 
Oh, Father, just enable us to live as freed up children of God. But Lord, I also pray for a group of folks in this room this morning that, that, that may have a false assurance. And I don't even know what that false assurance may be based on, a past memory or just a kind of pride that they're better than their neighbor or whatever it may be. But Lord, I'm just going to ask right now, would you just graciously pop the bubble? Would you lovingly speak truth? Would you confront us with any areas of of false assurance? I'm just going to ask you right now just to continue to be still before the Lord. And in your note-taking guide, we just have a couple questions.